Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. So welcome everybody to this episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm so pleased to introduce you to Melanie Cross. And I say introduce because Melanie, I'm about to ask you to introduce yourself. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and, and what is your connection to DLD? Hi, well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's wonderful to have this opportunity. I have worked for a very long time, probably over 25 years with children and young people who have, in in the UK, what we now call social, emotional and mental health needs. Um, And many of those were looked after children, so in foster care. And interestingly, when I was first asked to go there because they had a young person who had some trouble with her speech sounds and she couldn't say fur and cur. And she had a teaching assistant called Kim. So she used to say, duck off, Dim, you're a dunt. And I taught her how to say that properly. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I when I got there, I was just amazed by what was happening in all sorts of, I was impressed by the incredible work that was going on. I was horrified by some of the things I saw. It was just an amazing experience. And I began to look at the research and realised that even then, you know, way back, there was research around children who have mental health needs are very likely to have undetected, um, whatever you want to call it, speech language communication needs. And, And even more recently, there's been a summary of that research, which shows that probably 81% of kids who have mental health needs have undetected communication needs. So I knew there was a job for me there, but what I really didn't know was what I could do, whether I could contribute anything, and if so, how. And it was very difficult to explain to other people around what these communication needs were. So hooray for the DLD diagnosis, because in those days we called it specific language impairment, and clearly it wasn't specific because I had all sorts of other difficulties. So I guess everything that I've done since then has been around trying to work out what I, what speech and language therapy, speech pathologists could contribute and how we could teach it most effectively to these these young people who obviously often really didn't want to learn anything from us. So since then, I've I've done lots of other things. I've worked for charity like um, ICANN. Um, I worked at City University. I've worked with the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists quite a lot um, to develop resources and networks, professional networks, and all sorts of things, which which we'll talk about. So yeah, that's that's me. And one of the things that I know that you have developed most recently is um, a book called Language for Behaviour and Emotion, which you've written with Anna Brannigan and Stephen Parson, who recently joined us on the Talking DLD podcast. Can you tell us a bit about the book? So like I say, I spent many years trying to think about how to support young people who are experiencing DLD, other communication needs and mental health issues. And there's very little research on intervention for them, a little bit more now. and as I said, also that these young people are often hard to engage. So there was, there was lots of bitter trial and error as well. Mm. Um, and 
one of the things I think about working with these kids is that they kind of make you do your best because if you offer something that's kind of off the shelf or not really thought through or not very exciting, not very engaging, not very functional, they're just not going to do it. So, uh, you know, it, it makes you really think about and, and what they're often saying to us, what they said to me was, why? Why should I? What's this for? What's the point? And these are very, very important questions. So there's that. But then there's also, we didn't have much to go on about what to do to support these young people, but there's the research is growing and growing about the possibly negative impact of DLD. And so some of these impacts are fairly obvious. You know, we it's obvious that you need language to get on well with others, to form relationships and have conversations. Maybe a little less obvious that it's really important for literacy, but that's a key thing. Many of these young people don't, as, as Pam Snow says, don't cross that bridge to literacy, and that leads to all sorts of issues. But other things that are even less obvious is that you need language to think and talk about emotions uh, and to manage them. So that led us into the idea of we, we kind of knew what we needed to address. Another area that's really important is that language is, of course, used to help young people if they have problems with their behaviour. And I'll come back to that because behaviour isn't a diagnosis, it's, it's an indication, it's a symptom. But, you know, nonetheless, there are settings who just think about behaviour. Also, there are lots of people who are trying to help young people with their mental health. And that's all done through language. And that can be problematic too, if you've got DLD, because somebody's saying to you, okay, so what's the problem? What, what's the issue? Um, one story about that was a young person was asked, how did you get here? And they said, well, we came on the bus. And of course, logical. What the, what the professional was after was, tell me about your feelings and where you struggle and all of that. So, th so there's that. Um, and then, of course, the interventions themselves use language. And, and people might say things like, what do you now know that you could not have known then? So, you know, I can see from you, your face, Sean, that anybody who's a speech language therapist or pathologist or a linguist is, is kind of thinking, whoa, that's, that's a really complicated sentence and it requires mm -hmm. lots of skills that kids with DLD don't always have. And, and the sad fact is that um, children and young people get kind of kicked out of mental health services. It's said that they don't engage and actually often that's because they don't really understand what, what people are trying to do. Very well-intentioned interventions just don't make sense to them. Um, and if people are interested in this kind of thing, um, Professor Courtney Norbury has done a wonderful video to explain a bit more about why language is important for mental health. So I'd recommend that. Mm, I think that's on the Rattled YouTube channel as well. So we could always link to that. Yeah. So. The research showed us clearly where the skills gaps might be in, in young people who have DLD, communication needs um, and mental health needs. So they're, they're likely to be around understanding language, emotional literacy. Um, so, that, you know, there's even evidence that 
kids with DLD have difficulty recognizing facial expression, um, lots of those kinds of things that we didn't always expect actually to start with. Um, there's also likely to be skills gaps in inference and verbal reasoning. So working out what people mean, even though they don't necessarily say it. So all that stuff when, when people, you know, an adult walks in and says, oh, look at that mess. But actually what they mean is clear it up. And one of the big problems that, that people have, young people have with each other is they don't get this subtle stuff. They misunderstand each other because of that kind of subtle language. We know that these young people have issues with narratives, telling a story. And that's so important. It's important because almost everything we do, what we've already done today, Sean and I, is in our initial conversations, we're telling each other little stories. That's what a conversation is. So it's important there. It's important because you need to be able to explain yourself. Why did you do that? What happened? But it's even more important because to be mentally healthy, we need to be able to tell a story about ourselves. We, we need to understand the story of our lives. So even if you've had a really tough start, if you can tell that story in a coherent way, if you can say, well, my family really struggled, my mum had depression, she did our best, this happened, that happened, and actually this is where I am now, you're much more likely to be mentally healthy, whatever it was that happened to you in the past, if you can tell that and put that into a story. And in a sense, that's what a lot of therapy is about, isn't it? It's trying to help people describe that in a way. And in describing it, it gives you a bit of distance from it. And all of those skills that I've talked about, you need all of those to, and you need to be able to put them together to do what we call social problem solving. So that whole business of where, you know, in every relationship, there's rupture and repair. We, we get along okay, then we maybe misunderstand each other, we do something the other person doesn't like. And then how, how do we repair that? Uh, and as I say, it, it takes a lot of skills to be able to repair that. You need to be able to understand what people say, understand their perspective, how they felt, understand their story, all, all of the things that I've just spoken about. So language for behaviour and emotions attempts to teach all of those skills. This is why it took us five years and it's 400 pages. It, it is a monster. So that's what it attempts to teach. It also addresses the fact that we need to teach in a functional, interactive kind of way. And the, the first and most important part of that is, is really about how you need to have and develop a positive relationship with whoever you're working with. They need to trust you. You need to really make them feel as safe as possible before any learning can take place. So it's, it's really not just about what we teach, but how we teach it. So we talk about communication and emotion-friendly environments as well. I'm slightly pausing because I've spoken for a long time. I don't know if I need to clarify any of that. No, I think that that's fantastic. I will jump in and say I'm really pleased to hear the way in which you're talking about the difficulties that our young people face, but also the most common approaches are language-based therapies and these children seem to disengage. For me, that is 
you know, I, I'm on the constant lookout for mental health professionals in my area who get communication. And I don't know that necessarily uh, everybody has access to that knowledge either through their, you know, tertiary studies or not. And it means that these children often come across as disinterested or disengaged when in fact they haven't understood. Uh, and how can you respond to something like cognitive behavioural therapy, which is, you know, considered a gold standard for treatment for several mental health needs that is communication-based? I think it's a really important issue and it's something that I hope we can get better at doing this. And we'll talk about professionals and who can be involved in working together later. But for me, I'm, I'm vehemently nodding because I couldn't agree more. And it's actually one of my biggest fears in the space is that if we can't get mental health support and communication support happening simultaneously for these young people, they may not actually respond to the intervention in the way that we'd expect. And that has some very dire consequences. So you know, I'm taking it down a slightly, you know, more negative note here, but I, you know, we'll hand back to you, Melanie, because I think that what you're saying, I completely agree. Yeah, and, and sadly, I have seen those negative consequences. So really what we're about today and in the work that we're both doing is trying to change that. And I've got, you know, we're both really busy and we've really thought about this. So there are lots of things that we'll mention that might hopefully change things. So just a, just a tiny bit more about language for behaviour and emotions mm. because it's it's kind of the whole package, which is, I think, one of the reasons why people I know who are working with speech and language therapy students have found it useful because it's all there. So you've got an assessment. You've got a starter assessment, which you need to do in order to access the programme. Then you've got all sorts of other assessments, um, and obviously these are informal ones, but they're on things that we don't necessarily have already. So things like emotional skills, emotional um, vocabulary, behaviour vocabulary, things like that. Out of that, you get a, a very clear profile because every single young person who has DLD or other language needs and mental health needs is different. So we, you know, we really need to spend time to understand their specific strengths and, and needs. Then you can get into specific strategies that might help them, that people can use every day. Then the majority, well, not the majority, but the, a big chunk of the book is stories which are illustrated, um, which give you an opportunity to teach. Near, each one gives you an opportunity to teach nearly all of those key skills I'm speaking about. So there will be some inference in it. There will be some emotion. Um, there is obviously the story and so on. And um, then there are also a whole load of other tools that you can use to support all of those specific skills. But again, just to stress, the, the point about using these stories is to have as natural a conversation about them as possible. It's not about an adult asking questions and a young person answering them. It's about, I wonder what this means. Um, what do you think? You know, sort of, so hopefully really empowering of the young person and really getting to the stage where you're thinking about things and solving problems together. We, we think that developing the young person's capacity to recognise their own skills and to kind of realise, oh, I'm not sure about that. Okay, let's go look at page 395 where there are 400 emotion 
uh, sort of emos, emojis or definitions and look at it and work out which ones are relevant here. Just thinking about my own clinical work, I think I've spent the better part of 15 years focusing so heavily on narrative skills, but it's only actually been in recent, uh, you know, um, years that the emphasis for me is really switched on the importance of personal narratives. And, you know, we can tell all of these fantastic fantasy stories about other people and other characters, but what you've tapped into, and I completely agree, is that without that ability to tell a personal narrative, you know, they lose this interconnective, you know, these interconnections with their peers or their family. Um, so actually, as, as a speech pathologist or as a speech and language therapist, as you say in the UK, you know, a huge part of what I do nowadays is actually personal narratives because they're so powerful and they're so important for what they actually need to do day to day. You know, we tell stories, but we mainly tell stories about ourselves because that's how we build relationships as human beings. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's taken me a, probably a surprisingly long time to realise the importance of personal narratives um, and how much time needs to go into doing that from a clinical perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But I also with great sensitivity because certainly for some of the young people that I've worked with actually that's a real no-go area mm. because their, their early lives and their current lives are sometimes really difficult and stressful for them so I think it's a lot of what I do is about offering the opportunities to think about these things and sometimes for these kids it's easier to think about it at a distance so you know it's not about what would what would you well we, we, we often do ask the question what would you do in this mm. situation but they can think about this other person and just sort of think it through at a distance if that's more comfortable for them too we all, we always give the opportunity for them to think about does this relate to anything that you know you've experienced but as i say it's so important to be really sensitive to what's what's comfortable for them and what's okay for them we know that there's growing awareness of mental health needs in the wider community and we have um you know events like are you okay day and um you know check-ins and all, all of these often workplace or school-based initiatives um which is great but i think one thing i we might just want to unpack a little bit more is you know that link between dld and behavior and mental health you know what is it about language needs that impact on somebody's um you know behavior in particular, but maybe also their, the way in which they, you know, might see their mental health or, or respond. Yeah, there, there are links, but it's it's not at all simple. Um, so one thing is that if you have DLD, you are at a greater risk of having mental health needs. But by no means is it every single young person with DLD who has mental health needs. So that's really important to know. Um, and it's much less likely if they're pro-social. So that means if they kind of want to help, if have concern for others. So there's there's a lot more we need to know about this, but it's not definitely the case that you're going to be, uh, you're going to get mental health issues if you have DLD. I talk about being aware, but not alarmed. Yeah, absolutely. But the other thing that's really important is that if you have, if you're a young person with mental health difficulties, you are very likely to have speech, language and communication needs of some kind, which is undetected. So that, that's a really important thing for anybody working with a young person who's got mental health needs to be aware of. 
But I think probably for most young people, it's it's what, what we call technically comorbidity. In other words, there are all sorts of things in their lives which have meant that they're more likely to have both mental health needs and communication difficulties of some kind. So things like genetic risk, adverse childhood experiences, social and economic disadvantage. And I suppose the thing that really exercises me, some of these things we, we can't do anything about. Some of these things we could do something about uh, as a society. You know, we make a choice. We could really change the lives of some of these kids. Um, I suppose the other thing to say is that if you if you have mental health difficulties, which may be quite a lot of us have had in the last year or so, mm. it affects your willingness to communicate. You might not feel like chatting so much. You might be more absorbed in yourself. You might, it, it, you know, anxiety can bias your sort of information processing. So you might just be seeing lots of negatives and so on. I'm just thinking about what you've just said I'm, I'm, and sort of processing as well that, you know, there are, children with DLD are at risk, but it's not a causality here. It's something yes. that, you know, uh, and it can co-occur, not necessarily be caused by, um, but the language needs for intervention and support would be something to consider, of course, as we've already discussed. Um, so thinking about, I'm just conscious of our listeners at this point, um, I'd really love if you could describe to our listeners what sort of warning signs might they actually look for, perhaps in members of their family who might have DLD, or children they support if they're allied health professionals or educators? I think I've said it before, you know, behaviour is a symptom, not a diagnosis. So, and also another lovely, useful cliche is behaviour is communication. So it's about changes in behaviour. You know, we're all different. Some, some of us are not very sociable, and that's okay, but if a young if a child becomes even less sociable, um, changes in all sorts of things, eating, sleeping, um, you know, could be an indicator. Um, certainly, I mean, I, there are lots of charities now give some information that give a lot more detail. But I think I think the key thing is that if it's somebody that you know well and you can see a change in them then it, that could be an indication that things aren't going well. Absolutely. I think, you know, it is something that comes up a lot that behaviour is communication and communication is behaviour. But to me, I've always, uh, uh, you know, described behaviour as this logical response. You know, it's it's the brain and doing the most logical thing, which is if you're struggling to understand and use language, of course you're going to behave differently sometimes those challenge those behaviors will challenge us uh, other times it will be that their behaviors result in maybe withdrawing um, I actually find that the children who are probably seen to be the more challenging ones the ones that I feel more comfortable working with because to me it makes perfect sense that they're doing what they're doing and the children that withdraw sit back um, sort of you know, hide from that experience. They're the ones that actually scare me the most because I feel like they're the ones that are harder to reach and therefore harder, you know, they're not the squeaky wheels and they're often internalising um, some of their experiences. So I always 
you know, talk to the teachers, because I've mainly worked with school-age children, talk to teachers about identifying not just the children with the most outlandish behaviour, but also the ones that are withdrawing. And I actually really love that in the first Catalyze paper um, by Bishop et al. back in 2016, that one of the, you know, looking at identification factors was around, you know, behaviour and social-emotional needs. And I use that quite frequently when talking to um, different health professionals and educators saying, hey, actually, if you're worried about a person's behaviour, um, consider evaluating their language skills because it's more likely than not that they actually may have, you know, some sort of speech and or language needs that we hopefully can address. Yeah, and as you say, the, the key thing is to also be looking at those who, who are showing signs of internalising behaviour, those who are withdrawing as well as those who are shouting and throwing things yeah. because they're the ones who really do get missed. Absolutely. They're often in my experience, has been a bit of stigma attached to mental health needs. So there is growing awareness, but, you know, still throw away comments like, oh, you know, just, you know, get a good night's sleep or try harder or, you know, it's um, still something that at times people can find hard to process. How can we approach talking about mental health specifically for people with DLD? What, what might we actually need to consider either as family members or health professionals or educators who might be going in to have some of those early conversations. And as you said, they can be quite coming from all sorts of different backgrounds and we may not know all of their prior experiences. What are your thoughts on that? I think the most important thing is to model what you want kids to do. So, you know, if you are somebody who, who talks about feelings, who talks about managing feelings, um, who offers offers kids options really around? Um, I mean, one of, one of the key uh, strategies I think is is emotional coaching. Um, so that's about having empathy with whatever they're feeling. Um, maybe suggesting words that could be appropriate for that, and that and the suggest is really important there because mm. we never know for sure how someone else is feeling. And if you say, "Oh, you're angry." they're very likely to get even more angry. But if you're saying, mm, I'm wondering if that's a bit irritating, um, so that you're you're helping kids link their feelings with um, some words, helping them notice emotional cues in themselves and in others. So again, often that's, that's about talking about things. I was speaking to someone this morning who, about a young person, and we would we decided that, the issue that he had was he didn't know when he was getting to the point of being overwhelmed. And so he he would just then, you know, there would be an explosion. And maybe the word overwhelm would, is, is going to be too complicated for him. But for, for people to say in his environment, okay, I'm getting to the point where I need a break. So I'm going to stop now. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And to encourage him to do the same is likely to be to be really helpful. Um, adults are, are really important also in how they point out other perspectives. So, okay, you're feeling this, but but look at him. I think he looks stressed. I can see this kind of frown and his voice is getting quite wobbly. We need to think about how he's feeling. And then adults spend a lot of time naturally um, helping kids problem solve and repair in that sort of situation. So 
if you're if you're a model for this kind of emotional literacy, I think then it makes it much easier for kids to talk about it with you. And again, it comes back to building that relationship where, where they actually trust you and they feel safe because none of us are going to admit to feeling wobbly or depressed or any of those things if we feel like we're going to be judged for it. That, that I think is one of the key things. I'm thinking about my parenting strategies here as you're talking because <laughs> we tend to be the family that talks about, I'm feeling really frustrated right now. I just need to go and sit by myself for a minute because yeah. I actually, or, you know, am not coping with what's happening or, um, you know, apologizing, you know, or as an adult saying, actually, I probably didn't, sorry, I didn't handle that really very well. And I probably, I don't even know, I've probably picked that up over working with children for such a long time now that I'm thinking about, you know, my poor children, no, not poor children, because, you know, it sounds like a, pro, you know, good proactive strategy, but it's almost making the implicit as explicit as possible, isn't it? I think it's absolutely that because all of this research around things like emotional literacy, positive early interactions, it, it, people get that by looking at what parents naturally do. Mm. The, the problem is that when we're in a situation where we're not with our own kids or we're with people who are really struggling, mm. we lose track of our own instincts really. And it's very helpful to have those things made explicit so that we can actively think, right, I need to take a step back. I need to really listen or, or whatever it is. And, and, you know, these kinds of things have, have got me out of deep doo-doo. You know, things get very bad and I, and I can, and because I'm aware of it consciously, I can think, okay, I, I, I need to go back to empathy for where they are and, and then we'll find a way forward. Just one other thing I wanted to mention around this is in terms of um, talking to young people about um, mental health is, is information. And there are lots of good charities. I don't know what you've got in Australia. Mm, we have many, um, yep. Young Minds, for example, which, which has lots of really brilliant information about all kinds of mental health needs, which is designed for young people. Mm. So I think that a whole idea of normalising it which again, you know, thank you, COVID. We're, we're talking about it more. Everybody's been anxious. Everybody's been depressed, you know, and that that's okay because it's mm. part of being a human being and we've been through difficult times. This time we've done it together. Mm. But often, you know, you might not have experienced the same things as this young person you're with, but just for them to recognise that lots of, lots of others have experienced it or, and there are ways to help. I def there are definitely charities here in Australia that, you know, we recommend. In fact, one of the biggest changes in my practice in the last two years has been the fact that I really struggled with, and this is an ongoing Twitter debate, those of you who have been involved in it, or conversation, I should say, not a debate, um, you know, know that, you know, talking about report writing, who are the reports for and how do we write them? And so one of the sort of decisions I've made is I write for the child because I work primarily with children I write as if this person is reading this report either now or in the future maybe as a young adult or an adult you know at some point and one of the things that I've started doing which I think initially people were quite surprised was I put in the line the the phone number that if this call, report causes you any distress please contact these health mental health professionals for advice or contact our clinic um, because sometimes we have to write these things that are not necessarily 
easy to read. And if we're writing for the young person that maybe we're supporting, you know, if they're going to read this about themselves, that's can be quite life altering at times. So I think that people probably thought I was a bit cracked in the head. Um, but the more and more I think about it, the more and more I think it's actually really important for our young people to be able to access quality information at the time they need it. And they might need it when they're actually reading that report um, and accessing information. I think that, you know, I, I still stick to doing that despite being questioned, you know, doesn't that suggest that there's negative connotations or maybe your report wasn't actually saying something that was displeasing or upsetting, but maybe I can't assume how they're going to interpret that information. And so the best thing I can do is give them access to safety mechanisms and supports that are going to make sure that they feel heard at that moment. So, No, I I couldn't agree more. And I I always say that to people when, in terms of an assessment, who's it for? You know, what, what is the point of it? What, and if it isn't going to be benefit to the young person, if if it's because adults need some numbers, Mm. then I'm not really that interested. I think that um, I'm, I'm thinking of an example here as I'm leading into my sort of next question about, um, and I, it's a quite a, I find a helpful analogy when I do training because I've, I've done, I guess we'd call it behaviour support training, working with staff for several years. And one of the exercises I like to do is around getting a soft drink bottle and, you know, figuratively talking about the, getting them to build a narrative about what's led them to get to school that day. And, you know, people can be quite creative about what disasters have struck this young person on the way to school. Um, But by the end, once we've gone through a group and I ask people, would you want to actually open, you know, this bottle? And most people, most sensible people will say no. And so we then talk about de-escalation and actually work our way back through the group as to, okay, what are some of the de-escalating strategies? And these incredibly creative people who've built this narrative can often Uh, think about very quickly what could they do to actually help the young person in that moment when the sort of figurative we'd call it you know soft drink soda pop whatever you want to call it is going to flow over Um, so I'd be really interested Melanie in your thoughts on what we can actually practically do to support the mental health needs of people with DLD that might be you know proactively or in the moment Um, and what evidence supports these approaches you know who who could these people see that's a massive question i'm just conscious (laughs) conscious of that but i think that there's something there in how do we support these people in the moment yeah um i'm going to slightly duck it because in the uk we have this wonderful website called minded Mm -hmm. and that's free online training for adults around mental health needs wonderful and so that's where I always direct people for information. So if, if a young person has a specific diagnosis, ADHD, mm. attachment issues, issues with trauma, all sorts of things, then, then that's where you can find that information. And we have um, NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which gives us information on what are the most evidence-based approaches to whichever kind of diagnosis is appropriate so in terms of that information stuff um, and as I said there's also there are charities we have the uh, National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children which is obviously from that title quite an old uh, charity but a very important one and again there's lots of information there there's also um, the Anna Freud Centre which 
the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists, we're, we're working closely with them at the moment. And they've got lots of very, very good information for schools. So, as I say, that's a slight duck in it because, as you say, it's it's so broad. Mm, um, I think we'll come on to things that you can do sort of in the moment, although in a sense we've covered it because I think, in fact, Pam Snow has, has done a wonderful blog, which is I'm behaving at you, are you listening? Mm. And actually in any situation where somebody seems to be distressed, we, we basically need to listen. I think that is the most powerful tool that we have, our listening and our empathy. Um, and then we, we can find resources, we can find evidence-based interventions. In terms of the who can be involved, though, I'd love to hear, you know, obviously I think we both advocate that a speech pathologist slash speech language therapist would have an important role to play, but maybe it's that's not a, considered a traditional role, I guess, for a speech pathologist. Um, but who else might be involved, I guess, in supporting these young people? I suppose one of the reasons I'm hesitating is that, and I don't know what it's like where you are, but we're in a situation where there are just massive waiting lists for yep. things like child child and adolescent mental health services. There are services around, so psychologists, psychiatrists, mm-hmm. occupational therapists, mm-hmm. educational psychologists. There are a multitude of wonderful people who mm-hmm. can support children and young people who, who are mm-hmm. struggling. Um, but the sad fact is they might have to wait quite a long time before they get to see any of those people. We've got funding in Australia that relies on seeing multiple professionals and um, DLD is often most frequently diagnosed by a speech pathologist. Uh, but one of the things that I do recommend to my families is relatively quickly, where possible, building a relationship with a mental health professional, generally a psychologist, um, because it's much easier to have an existing relationship with that professional than it is to all of a sudden be in crisis and trying to then get into somebody to actually help manage that. So even if you see somebody irregularly, maybe it's once every couple of months, um, but it's much easier as a health professional to then say, hey, you're in a crisis, I need to see this person more regularly and sort of look at your appointments and and schedule those in. uh, When somebody, you know somebody and you're not actually starting from rapport building. And I think that that's one of the approaches that I often recommend to families in Australia is, you know, at some point it's likely that your young person will need support. Not always, but likely. Much easier where we can do it preventatively and proactively, but our system doesn't easily enable people to do that. Often it requires them to pay for it out of their pockets and not everybody's in that privileged financial yeah. position. So, yeah, it's it's hard, I think, and I don't think our systems are set up to best support the people that we need to support best. One of the problems is that that whole idea of of comorbidity, what we're saying is that many of these young people need support from all kinds of different professionals Mm. and organisations and systems are not usually set up like that. They're more set up by if you've got this, you go see that person. If you've got that, you go and see that person. And so that that doesn't help. Um, And one of the things that we're really campaigning for is to have speech and language therapists with being employed within um, mental health settings. So in child and adolescent mental health settings, for example. But what we're seeing more and more in this country is that where there are schools, which are specifically for children who have social, emotional, mental health needs, 
more and more of them are employing speech and language therapists. And that's um, that's that's a big step forward. And, and gradually awareness is, is being raised, which I, I know that's something we're going to talk about. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think there is a need for more speech and language therapy, speech pathology right there alongside professionals who are working with child, children who have mental health needs. I have to say, I'll be honest, and um, I have tried to pinch many a psychology student to study a master's in speech pathology, because A, getting into a clinical psychology degree is, I don't know about the UK, but in Australia can be quite challenging. It's a very coveted, sought after sort of profession. People, Many people are applying for very few opportunities in universities, um, but an undergraduate degree in psychology is actually a beautiful place to start, um, you know, or counselling and then actually putting that master's in speech pathology. I think there's actually a, a real need um, for people who can see, I guess, the whole the whole needs. Yeah. I mean, we're very fortunate. Our um, association, Speech Pathology Australia, does a wonderful job of advocating around mental health. And we've got uh, a specific advisor um, who can support clinicians here in Australia. Um, but it's something that I think will just continue to grow exponentially. I think, as you've said, we now know the power of speech pathology in mental health and the language that's associated with it. I can't see it slowing down. Yeah. We just need to hopefully build the systems that, yeah. um, you know, will fund and support these initiatives. And it cuts both ways. So other professionals in working in mental health need to know about DLD. But speech language pathologists, speech and language therapists need to know about mental health. You know, so there, there, there's a need for that, all of those, that crossover in undergraduate training as well as the postgraduate stuff. And you've sort of touched on this point um, that I'm about to raise, but I'll, I'll ask as well, uh, ask anyway, because I think that you might potentially expand on it. But what, what do you actually recommend for carers? who might be supporting their loved ones with DLD. We've got a number of families who r- regularly listen. Um, you know, often we get quite clinical sometimes in our conversations. And I always want to make sure that we meet the needs of our families because at the end of the day, as a health professional, I'm only there for part of their journey. The families are walking this walk every day. What sorts of things might you recommend for them who are trying to support their little person or not so little person at home? One of the things I think to remember is as I said earlier, that much of the research about the best things we can do come from looking what parents actually do do. So it's it's often about getting back in touch with the things that you do and being having that reinforcement that these things are really, really important. So if your young one maybe is struggling a bit with their, their mental health, I like um, Dan Hughes' acronym PACE, and it's about that stands for being playful, accepting, curious, and empathic. And having that as the basis of, of interactions, particularly when things are getting stressful, is very helpful. And we, we talked a bit about the emotion coaching, that kind of stuff, talking about emotions. Um, thinking about helping kids get better at interacting with other kids and other people Um, that kind of social communication coaching again it comes back to the model that you give them and the way that you are with other people is really powerful to from how you interact with other people so showing them you know this is how we share this is how we have a conversation 
when they're struggling, dropping in an idea, so sort of suggesting, you could ask him if he wants a turn, that kind of stuff. And then very, very specific praise around, um, I really like the way you listened, or I really, the way that you talked to me about how you felt, that made me feel great. You know, we're really communicating, that kind of stuff. So it helps them understand what, what they're doing that's really good. I think there's also some research now that really struck home to me about self-efficacy and that helps children with DLD be more effective. But um, what that means is helping them recognise what they can do and those ideas around the, the growth mindset. So saying to yourself, not I can't do it, but I can't do it yet. I just, you know, I need to keep at it and I, I will get there. And helping young people recognise their strengths because they may be in a situation where a lot of things are difficult and, and it takes a lot of energy and they might experience a lot more failure than other people, which is pretty rubbish, you know. So taking the pressure off and helping them and giving them time to do the stuff that they're good at and that they really enjoy. I think that tapping into strengths is something that has huge, you know, implications and huge ramifications when done well because uh, I, I keep on giving clinical examples but I think because you started with the story it keeps on coming you know all of these kids keep on coming to mind and um, a young person said to me last year I was going through a DLD diagnosis at 16 with this young man um, and he kind of was saying why me why am I why do I have these difficulties and I was saying to him you know it's the rich tapestry of life everybody's just different um, I said in this instance, we have a label for it, but you know, we I, we I work on a main road, and I said, well, you and I could go outside and run a hundred meters, and you would laugh hysterically because I am not a land, you know, I'm not I'm not good at running on land. I said I can swim relatively quickly, but you know, running on land is not my forte. But we don't have a term to describe people that are poor runners. We don't call them running disordered. Um, we, but because it doesn't have a significant impact on my day-to-day -day functionality, but language does. And so we use these labels because they describe a, you know, cluster of observable characteristics and we can do something to support you when you have that, um, you know, label. But it was really interesting, I guess, as a young man, a 16 year old was sort of processing, what does this actually mean? for me and one of the biggest things has been that actually just changing the environment for him and listening to him and focusing in on his strengths because he is and I should have said this in my previous part of the story he is an elite athlete you know he was captain of the sports teams and he was you know an excellent runner and he did all of these wonderful things and I said well let's focus on the positives um, and unbeknownst to him his parents weren't super concerned about him being academic we changed his you know, learning um, his subjects at school, got him into a trade apprenticeship, apprenticeship. And I ran into him the other day and he's really happy now because he's actually, I mean, we didn't do that much in terms of therapy. We adjusted his environment and now he's a really, you know, he's really enjoying being successful as a, as a carpentry apprentice. And all it did was take a chance to stop and listen to him. He said, I don't really enjoy doing these things. Well, why yeah. do all of the co most complicated subjects? You know, let's pick something that you enjoy. And he likes yeah. working with his hands. The other thing that I've begun to realise, because that we've had this um, 
communication accessible symbol thing in the UK um, mm. to help environment settings become accessible. And I did some work um, with foster carers and mm. people came to me and said, I, I think this is me, this DLD thing, adults. Mm. And of course, we didn't just invent DLD. It's probably been around for quite a long time. There are yep. lots of successful adults out there mm. who have it. And, and we kind of need to find them and learn from them as well as from those who are struggling mm -hmm. because it's it's really about what society values and how we value people, isn't it? Um, mm. So it really doesn't have to be uh, a negative. We, the research talks about all these negatives, but that's not the only outcome, is it? Yeah, this, this willingness um, to address neurodiversity and DLD being a part of that um, yeah. neurodiverse profile is actually really important, but also really empowering because as you said, it's not new. It's not like it was invented in 2017. It's been around for probably ever, but the language loading needed to engage in everyday life has increased exponentially since the industrial revolution, um, particularly with you know um, modern schooling. So it's probably comes as no surprise why now it's being more routinely seen and then diagnosed because of the language learning that's needed to participate in school. That's a bit of a watch this space, isn't it? But I'm, I'm yeah. optimistic for the future. Me too. So speaking of the future, in your opinion, what do you hope to see uh, in the future for DLD, whether it's in the UK or around the world? It could be research or clinical work or even service delivery. What would you love to see? Okay, so, I mean, I think much more awareness of the possibility of DLD in those young people who have mental health needs. And so the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapy has done, has done a lot of work on this. There are many fact sheets um, around this. Just recently, one was produced around adversity and, and the links to communication. And also there's a free online learning journey called Mind Your Words, which is for other professionals. So not necessarily speech and language therapists around all the kinds of things we've spoken about today, the links between communication behaviour and uh, mental health needs. And more importantly, kind of lots of practical stuff about well, what could we do, things about how we could change risk assessments and narratives and all sorts of things. I'd like to see much more appropriate intervention early on for these young people. So Maxine Winstanley's research suggests that it might not be DLD as such that is the link between uh, to offending behaviour. You know, we know a lot of young offenders have DLD, but it might not be just because they've got DLD. It might be because they have DLD that was not recognised and that was not supported. So we need to recognise and support it earlier. We need a lot more research. So there's, there's two things I, I would like to kind of encourage people to get involved with there. One of them is around language for behaviour and emotion. We're trying to get people to gather outcomes, get maybe some case studies, and there's information on the Thinking Talking website about that. We're having a little workshop soon to uh, with people who are interested to think about how we might go, go to, uh, forward with that. And we've got some guidelines that we had some support from researchers, Vicky Joffe and Judy Clegg helped us with that. So that might be of interest. The other thing is an emerging minds special interest research group. I know it's lots of words, mm. but basically they're trying to find out what 
people who experience DLD and other professionals and their families think are the research priorities, if that's not too convoluted. It's like, okay, what, what do you think researchers should be doing in this field? Because it's hard to get funding. And if we have this information from the people who experience it and the people who work with those who experience it, that might be more persuasive. So there's actually a questionnaire that you can go to online which says, tell me what research you think we should do. So if people are interested, it'd be brilliant if they were would, would go and complete that. I guess the other thing is what I would really love is for there to be communication and emotion-friendly environments everywhere. I mean, we wouldn't need to worry, would we? Just a few small, small wishes. I'm yeah, sure not we much. no. That's. <laughs> I think it's important to um, keep our eye on the prize because I think that genuinely, I think most people are actually wanting the same things for our young people, but we might say it all in different ways and often it's not up to us, but the voices of many coming together on these issues can be quite powerful rather than the voices of just individuals. So hopefully there will be, I'm sure, I'm sure there will be, I don't need to say hopefully, I'm sure there will be opportunities for continuing to advocate in this space. So as we're starting to draw to a close, I'm conscious of the time and I've just got one more question for you. At the DLD project, we're really focused on self-care and finding time to breathe in our busy day. It's one of our values that we um, constantly check in with ourselves. What do you what do you do to look after yourself? Yeah, uh, this is so important, particularly important in this area. And it's something that when we have uh, meetings with the speech and language therapists who work in this field, we always have on the agenda. We always maybe draw on positive psychology or something. There has to be something. And I personally have had to work very hard on this. Um, it's been a tough year. I've had my poor old dad had a stroke and he's really not very well, all sorts of things. So I, I've done, I do a lot of the obvious things, Tai Chi, meditation, walking. But today it's a sunny day and I'm going to get in my hammock and I'm not going to garden, but I'm going to look at my garden. Enjoy your afternoon in the hammock, Melanie. I'm sure you, you, I'm sure you, not that you need to do anything to deserve it, but I'm sure you definitely <laughs> warrant some um, time enjoying looking at your garden. Just to recap, just in your mind, what would you say would be the key points you want our listeners to take away from our chat today? That young people who have um, SEO, uh, mental health needs are at risk of undetected developmental language disorder. Um, those who have DLD are at risk of mental health difficulties, but it isn't necessarily going to be a problem for them. And basically that we all just need to be aware of these things and work together to support these young people. I know that our listeners are just going to love everything that you've said. And it was so rich and informative. And I think that when you've explained things, you've just explained things so beautifully. So thank you so much for giving up your time um, to join us on the Talking DLD podcast. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's wonderful to hear your experiences and, and be able to talk to your listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie and Sean, for that very helpful discussion on DLD and mental health. Uh, I think the point that mental health challenges can co-occur with DLD, but not every person with DLD will have problems with their mental health was a really interesting point. It's also great to know that something as simple as listening 
is one of the most powerful tools to help someone with mental health issues. There's more to do in this space, so we are going to be uh, continuing to work with Melanie. I'm sure you're happy to hear that. And all the links discussed in this episode, there were a lot, are linked off our website, uh, thedldproject.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Together, we are definitely creating a world where people with DLD are recognized, understood, and empowered to live their best life.